What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, the largest money manager in the world, $9.5 trillion under management, BlackRock. CEO Larry Fink in an extended interview ranging from climate change to travel to Fed policy and inflation. It is my view that inflation is going to be more systematic. I believe it's a fundamental foundational change in how we navigate economic policy. Now we are saying jobs are more important than consumerism. Consumers, consumers, consumers. Marriott's new CEO, Tony Capuano, says their travel appetite is back. Now, only one suited and briefcased group is left. The reason I say the fall is telling, as schools open, kids get back to school, you've seen some of the big banks here in New York say you got to get back to the office, and we think a return to the office is going to be a big catalyst for business trends. Those stories, but first, another roller coaster ride for crypto and a $3.5 trillion deal from Democrats. I've heard that some of the Republicans who had signed off on this are getting some cold feet about all the spending that comes afterwards. It's Wednesday, July 14th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe's back, even though he almost just had a malfunction. What the heck was that? That was my chair. Uh, (laughs) It was like part. You know, do you you put it so it can't go back? Do you put it so it can't go back? No. Oh, you don't. You let it go back. No, then I would saw it. So I I have the thing, and it it was must have been like right on the edge where it it, it missed. You almost fell out of your chair. It's tough to sit. It's tough to sit, you know, without falling. We try. We try. We always look at Bitcoin, too. Yeah, we do just uh, because it's it's in a range here, 31 to 35. I looked at a a one year chart earlier and was surprised to to see that. I mean, it's been a long time that it has. And anyone that's bought since, you know, in the last, I guess, really calendar, anyone who's bought this year probably isn't feeling that great. But it is holding 30,000. It has, and it's, it's had a lot of challenges. It goes, seems like it goes back to 35, then back to 30, 31. It got under 30, but it, it seems, you know, we'll see. And uh, I don't know if anyone knows short term where it's headed. And even the bulls, more and more of the people that we talk to that are that sometimes are pretty smart. Even now, I can't remember who, who I just recently saw who said it's, it, you know, was a, a bull that I didn't think necessarily would be a bull, kind of a, a, a long-time Stuff. Wall Street type. And we're seeing more and more people like that that seem to embrace a little more in it. Farley, Farley's like all in. Involved Joe, in, here's yeah. the good news. If you take yeah. the volatility, Joe, if you take the volatility out of it, though, and maybe yeah. that's what's happening here, I don't right. know. It, it could that, be. That is actually that is a good thing. 30 the new floor? far as if you ever wanted to be a, conser- a currency. right. right. If, if you, you want you're more never going to use right. it to buy things if you think it's going to be worth more tomorrow. Can you imagine saying watching Bitcoin traders like watching, you know, uh, paint grow, grass dry or whatever? <laughs> I mean, it, 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 if it gets to that point, 
that might be a positive because it's we're used to just the reason we could leave it on the stack every day is because it's always moving. It's always doing something. So uh, but 30 to 35 thousand is a heck of a lot more than 4,000. And do you remember when Tom Lee said uh, it'll be 20,000 by the end of the year? Remember? Oh, that was a while ago. It was. (laughs) No, time flies. Uh, But when he was saying that and we 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 were like, I can remember asking him, Tom, you're this well-respected equity guy that's had great calls. Why are you getting involved that with this? That was a long time ago. I remember that conversation, too. Right, yeah. yeah. It's, people think 20000 it's back to, you know, 2000 Why would you stake your reputation on something so speculative? And, and he did, and, and it happened. But um, So maybe it is getting more mainstream. Sorkin, it, maybe it is. I don't maybe, know. You saw, were you surprised at how many transactions were conducted when Visa said that last year? That was a big number compared to the previous year. Yeah, it's unclear how that was calculated, the, the quote-unquote transaction number, though, because it wasn't clear whether they were all transactions as in sales of, of, of Bitcoin to each other or actually but for a It was still 10 times a year transaction before, though. It was still like buy t- something multiple with it. from the year before, though, right? It was up like... Yep. But part multiple. of that is just the volume of the activity that we've seen in terms of how many people are transacting or not, I don't want to say transacting with transacting is the wrong, wrong. How many times it is being bought and sold to each other, but not necessarily for buying pizza. I mean, I guess that's the well, question. Are you buying pizza with it or not? Right. And then because well, that's when it's a currency. Otherwise, a value, assets transact all the time. Right. But as a store of value, you could almost say 30, you know, as an alternative to gold, which has been you know, strangely quiet with 5% inflation in the Middle East and, you know, Cuba, you know, take your pick. But with it, with all the things that could be pushing gold up, it hasn't. So that makes you think maybe 30,000 is what it's worth as a store of value. And anything above that for if it becomes transactional, it's just gravy. Yeah, you wonder where gold would be if Bitcoin had never come into into play. If we get, you know, now that Branson can, you know, just head up there on a, a minute's notice, if an asteroid does come by that's got, you know, made of gold, <laughs> we're going to go up and mine that. And I don't know what that does to gold prices when it becomes as, you know, as, as that, that is actually something people have postulated. That people we can, have. I've heard that. I've heard that. It's I not mean, so. It's, I thought it might happen with diamonds when, you know, industrial diamonds. Yeah. Then why would... Uh, But we digress. That's so unlike us. Senate Democrats announced last night that they've reached a budget agreement amongst themselves that calls for spending $3.5 trillion over the next coming decade. And Elon Moy joins us this morning with the latest. Good morning. Well, that's right, Andrew. Infrastructure is actually moving. Senate Democrats reached that agreement on the human capital portion of President Biden's infrastructure plan. That would include child care, Medicare expansion, climate change. The total spending is $3.5 trillion. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he knows they still have a long road ahead. However, Democrats are using this budget reconciliation process to pass this plan. That means all 50 Senate Democrats do need to get behind it, but no Republican support would be required. Last night, Democrats said the deal is fully paid for, in part through higher taxes on corporations and the wealthy. But it's unclear how much revenue Democrats plan to raise 
or what the net cost will be. Now, I'm told by multiple sources that this package does not include an increase in the debt ceiling. Technically, that comes back into effect at the end of this month, though the Treasury Department likely has some wiggle room into the fall. In addition, two sources told me that whether or not to lift the cap on state and local tax deductions, that is still in flux. Right now, Democrats only need to decide on the top line numbers for their package. The details are going to get hashed out over the next few weeks or even months. And guys, don't forget about that bipartisan group of senators that's been working on a core infrastructure plan. They also said last night that they're hoping to have their bill ready by the end of this week. Back to you. So what, 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 give us handicap it. What do you think is really going to happen here? Yeah, I think it's very likely that Senate Democrats pass this budget resolution. They have been adamant in creating what they are calling a unity budget, something that can be supported by both the progressive wing of the party as well as centrists in the party, the Kristen Cinemas, uh, the Joe Manchins of the world. The fact that both Bernie Sanders and Mark Warner, who also sits on the budget committee, came out um, and said that they've reached this deal, I think was significant. Um, the challenge will be, you know, coming up with the spending figure is one thing, coming up with the pay for is another. One assumes that they've already decided at least have a plan for how much money they're going to need to raise because the budget resolution requires them to specify an amount for increasing the deficit over the next decade. So they need the spending side, but they also need the revenue side. Uh, We assume that they've come up with that, but they have not just shared it with us yet. Okay, Elon Moore, thank you. Appreciate it. Hey, Joe. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think the market's baking in on what Elon just said? I was, uh, she addressed my, what I was asking. I, I've seen Manchin say some things uh, about how, you know, it's a lot of money, you got to pay for it. Uh, I, I think, I think that they have paid for Yeah, it, I think, it? and I think that, that he'll, I don't know, he's, if he's going to stay in that, he's going to stay a Democrat, well, he's going to have to act like a Democrat at some point. It's not just him, it's cinema and it's others. Yeah. But then I also wonder what happens to the bipartisan deal, because I've heard that some of the Republicans who had signed off on this are getting some cold feet about all the spending that comes afterwards. And it did sound like they were working through a lot of the issues. I think it was Rob Portman who said they'd worked out lots of them. There's a couple dozen left that they're trying to work through on that bipartisan issue. But if, if you see some of them getting cold feet, how, how does that change the situation? I think there's still a lot of things that can happen and a lot of moving pieces that need to be connected before this is kind of a done well, deal. The, the Journal and others and, and you know people on Twitter there's pressure on the Republicans not to be sort of, uh, you know, mooches, yeah. yeah, like sheep led to the slaughter, like, yeah, great, let's do it. Thank you for letting us do a bipartisan thing. And then everything that wasn't in that, the so Democrats passed sex, themselves. Yeah. It's like you just look like you were totally duped. And, and people are saying, do not do it. Do not go down. And Trump, you know, of course, saying you guys would be crazy if you would. Uh, and he still holds some sway. The state of Alaska has become one of the big winners from the meme trade, uh, stock trade. The state's revenue department owned 43,000 GameStop shares worth $802,000 at the end of December. Since then, the state's GameStop position surged in value by more than 900% to $8.2 million. Now, obviously, not huge numbers in total, but Fascinating, nonetheless, all of this, according to a report in Business Insider that said the state also made a big bet on Tesla, ramping up its investment from 2,000 shares at the end of September to 127,000 shares at the end of December. Overall, Alaska's stock portfolio rose in value by 7% to $9.9 billion last quarter. Not bad 
for a state that was ranked, we should mention, last on CNBC's top states for business. So a little news you really can't use, but um, I put it in the category of just uh, a fascination, if you will. That's interesting. They also, you know, with oil prices up so significantly, I wonder what that has meant for the state's coffers and the money that they used to at least pay out to every citizen in Alaska based on how much money they were getting on the oil. So we'll see how that kind of all plays in. But it sounds like it was a pretty good year, at least so far, for Alaska when it comes to the markets. Next on Squawk Pod, CEO of BlackRock, the largest money manager in the world. Larry Fink's market outlook, his climate concerns, and after traveling abroad for the first time in 16 months, some COVID concerns for the world's economic recovery. We are seeing a real disconnect between the countries that have been very vaccinated and moving forward on vaccination and the countries that have been late in vaccination, but focusing more on isolation. So we are going to see this unevenness. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Up track. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. BlackRock is the world's largest money manager with, as of last quarter, $9.5 trillion in assets under management. BlackRock is led and has been since 1988 by Larry Fink. On his watch, BlackRock has grown tremendously. It's accumulated two and a half trillion more dollars in assets under management in the last eight or nine months. And since he's been CEO, he's delivered returns double that of the S&P 500 in the same time period. He's also an outspoken leader. In 2020, his annual letter to fellow executives urged the business community to prioritize climate change as a real, imminent threat to our world and our businesses. He spoke at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, on the topic, and this year he's doubled down. Just this past weekend in Venice, Larry delivered remarks at the G20, again on climate change. This time, instead of using his firm's and his reputation's hefty influence to push corporate leaders, he took aim at governments as well. As he said, corporate sustainability reports aren't the answer alone. In addition to those efforts, he looked directly at the International Monetary Fund and at governments around the world for their partnership. And of course, there's Larry's business of being the largest asset manager in the world, which means when the Fed pulled out all the stops at the beginning of the pandemic, using all the extraordinary monetary measures in its toolkit, it enlisted BlackRock to help manage some of those, which isn't all that surprising when we recall that back in 2008, the Fed turned to BlackRock to oversee 130 
billion dollars in distressed debt during the financial crisis. That was the last time we saw this kind of whatever-it-takes approach to support the American economy. And as you probably know by now, that maximum effort, maximum speed approach has some effect on inflation. In fact, U.S. inflation continued to accelerate in June at the fastest pace in 13 years. Last month's Consumer Price Index, an economic tool that measures what consumers pay for clothes, groceries, meals out, activities, cars, it ticked up in the largest one-month change since 2008. So, as we watch our economy recover and our prices rise, Larry Fink is the one we want to ask. How's it going? Here's Becky Quick. We've gotten used to a market that keeps climbing up, and you're somebody who knows the markets really well. What what do you think about that, Larry? What, what, What concerns you, or what makes you think that this trend will continue? The amount of cash on the sidelines has never been greater. The amount of monetary stimulus has never been greater. The amount of fiscal stimulus has never been greater. Um... And I was in Europe last week. I was traveling around the world two weeks ago. There's no question from my conversations with clients, their bigger concern is how to put their money to work, where should they put it, and how should they think about it. Uh, Specifically in Europe, Europe has been a laggard. Europe has been always slow in response. But Europe this time around versus 2008 and 2009, aggressive monetary policy, very aggressive fiscal stimulus uh, great deals of cash on the sidelines. And, uh, and I do believe we're going to see the world rebounding economically. I was in Italy. Italy uh, had a 9% decline in GDP in 2020. It'll take them 18 months to get back to where they were, but they're in a great trajectory. France, France is going to rebound the entire uh, GDP loss of 2020 and 2021. So we're, we're seeing different metrics. Now, there are, there, there are things that I worry about. I worry about inflation. I do not believe inflation is going to be transitory, that it's going to be uh, you know, more systematic over time. And how the Federal Reserve and how other central banks navigate that is going to be very important. I am worried about the Delta variant. And can that slow down you know, parts of Asia? We are seeing uh, a real uh, disconnect between the countries that have been very vaccinated and moving forward on vaccination and the countries that have been late in vaccination, but focusing more on isolation. You know, isolation worked before we had a vaccination. And now with a vaccination, these countries that were late in the vaccinations are going down in in isolation again. And so we are going to see this unevenness. Uh, in the world today. And, and so I'm not trying to suggest that it's, it's going to be a straight line upward. And there, there could be disappointments going forward. But, but overall, with the amount of fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus, and more importantly, with the amount of cash that is looking to be put to work, and uh, I, I believe the trend line is still going to be upward, maybe not as fast, Maybe it's going to be very moderate for the next six months as we digest how the world uh, is able to handle the Delta variant and the speed in which vaccinations occur throughout the world. And then two, you know, what is going to be inflation out six months in a year? Larry, in the past, you've spoken uh, passionately about, uh, you know, getting everyone, all the boomer people that are uh, getting close to retirement age, the, the, the ability to retire and that we're just not prepared. There's been recent articles writ- written about uh, about the Fed and how everything the Fed is doing it, with well intentions is actually just killing savers. And the people that are make the people that are doing well 
given the Fed's action, there are people that own assets and income inequality is getting worse. And everybody that, that owns a house, everybody that owns stocks, everybody that has all these things are getting marked up, but not for the right reasons, not because of an underlying uh, organic uh, type growth. And savers are continuing to be just slammed. I mean, are, are you not worried about the, the Fed's action at this point? I don't see how they get out. You just said that, that you know, inflation is probably going to be higher. They're stuck in this box where they can't really stop. And the more they don't stop, the more savers get hurt. So what's the answer long term? Joe, hey, Joe, I think you framed it really well. And I've been talking about that for years about, you know, the, um, the, the silent crisis of a retirement. And un, unquestionably, as central banks keep rates low or negative in Europe, the savers are getting slammed. And you're absolutely correct. Asset owners are the biggest beneficiaries of monetary policy. And this is why I think a year ago, two years ago, I talked about we need a more fiscal stimulus and maybe less monetary stimulus. Um, and and uh, and so there is no question um, savers are being slammed, using your word. Um, and and that is a persistent problem and that will remain a bigger problem. Much of this has to do with this is one of the reasons why we're seeing many of the savers are now more confused. Uh, and I think some of them are now finally uh, entering in equities and other asset categories as a part of it. I think, as you remember, on your show a number of years ago, I was asked, what should be your asset allocation? I've always said 100 percent in equities. Uh, not that I predicted where uh, uh, monetary policy will be. But unquestionably, we are going to have to address the, what I would call the silent crisis of retirement. People are going to have to Unfortunately, if you know whether they like it or not, they may have to work longer because they're not earning the same returns on on their savings. On the other hand, if you had a balanced portfolio over the last uh, you know year, you've done quite well. You may be being hurt on your on your on, on your bond or cash allocation, but in your equity allocation, you've done quite well. And for those who own homes, obviously, they've been a big beneficiary uh, of rising asset prices. Uh, but how, um, so I think the big question is going to be, where is inflation out six months? Uh, it is my view that inflation is going to be more systematic. And the reason why, and I may have said this in the past, but I believe it's a fundamental foundational change in how we navigate economic policy. I think post-World War II, our economic policy was based on consumerism. We always believed that the cheapest products uh, for Americans was the best way that more Americans can have more things. And I would say in the last five years, we've navigated away from that foundational belief. And now we are saying jobs are more important than consumerism. We are now focusing more on national security issues. We are now focusing on things about bringing more manufacturing back. Uh, that is going to probably lead to a systematically more inflation. What we are looking at now with all the uh, issues around uh, the imbalances right now in supply and demand, and so, we're back-ordered in so many things. And I'm hearing from every CEO that they have huge price increases, and they're passing them on across the board here in the United States and in Europe. And much of it had to do with we had such efficient supply chains, and those supply chains are now showing what I would say the weakness around this imbalance. 
And then more importantly, moving supply chains away from the concentration in different parts of the world, including China. And so all of this is just changing our, our network. And the other thing that I wanted to say, as, and I wrote this uh, and said this in Venice this past week, if we don't focus on the demand curve in, in our energy transition, but only focusing on supply, we are going to see rising energy prices. And I raise the question is, what does that mean if we had $100 oil or $120 oil? That's going to be inflationary, too. Uh, you're, and I, I'm firmly well, believing that we are going to see wage increases and all that. So all this spells to me is that we are going to have 3.5% inflation or more over so the coming year. Larry, and though, we saw that. in Yeah, yeah Andrew. Help us with this. There is a view yeah. that inflation should be good for equities. But depending on how you're describing this, it may not be. Which one is it? So the real big question will be if we're able to pass on the prices and it doesn't uh, change the margins or we, we're able to create better productivity, which we've done over the last you know, 20 odd years, uh, then inflation is good for equities. If, if the um, inflation is going to be absorbed uh, in the margins without productivity, then we're going to see a flattening or declining margins. That's going to be the pivotal question related to equities. It is what I've heard in all my conversations with many CEOs in the last two weeks. They're passing that on, and that's why I think there's a little more inflation. Um, now, and the other big question is, if I'm right that we are going to see very large wage inflation over the coming year, that may be considered good inflation too, Andrew. Um, and so it's going to be you know, we never thought having deficits this large would be good, and yet the market is able to handle these type of deficits. I have my own doubts over the coming years, but we're going to have to see what the mood of the market is related to. Do we differentiate inflation between wage inflation and other inflation? We're going to have to spend a lot more time focusing on margins in, in corporations to understand if, if this is good for equities or bad for equities. Hey, Larry, I had one other question uh, unrelated to inflation, but related to BlackRock's role and, and, and the increasing aggressiveness with which uh, you're pursuing things around climate. I know you just uh, gave a speech. I read a, what I thought was a fascinating essay by Roger Lowenstein, who you know, famously wrote about Warren Buffett and uh, about, uh, about the, the long-term uh, management crisis. And he said something which I, I had not really thought about, as, as maybe as much as I should, he says, as an index manager, BlackRock is not judged, this was in respect to Exxon, but not judged on Exxon or any stock's performance. He says, the problem is that the people casting the votes are policy setters rather than economic owners. And he goes on to say that index funds are useful administrative conveniences. They were chosen to be passive, to manage nothing, and that their voting power is an accident. And I thought, given all of the, the things that you've been trying to do, that I'd love to get your response to, to, to what Roger was saying. Uh, well, I, I would disagree with this term. It, it was an accident. Um, one share, one vote. The only power we have as an index provider for those the clients who awarded us that money uh, is the power of the vote. And uh, so I don't think Roger spoke to the investors who have asked BlackRock and other firms to invest in the index. They want us to be a fiduciary. They want us to be focused on that. The problem we have in the marketplace is we have too much narrative about the moment of the market, the ups and downs in the market. You know, if people can buy or sell 
and or somebody could manipulate or change a course of a, a you know an activist can change a course of a company and that we're going to still own that company after the activist leaves and this is the type of conversations we had in 2012 and 13 on this show um, and our, our, as a fiduciary, our investors are asking us to have a voice for long-termism and making sure that the company is moving forward on a long-term basis. So I would entirely disagree with his statements. Uh, I'm having the conversations with the owners of the assets. The, you know, we're at the nexus between the owners of the assets and the companies and assets we invest in. And the owners of the assets are looking forward to us having that uh, that vote in representing their shares. Now, we are looking at other ways of, of changing that. I mean, we believe there is a possibility that we could democratize the, our vote. by, And we have the technology now that we could go to all our uh, owners of capital and say, would you like to vote your shares yourself? And so we're going to be looking at different ways of, of how to rethink about the vote. But our uh, our responsibility as a asset advisor to these owners of assets is to making sure that they are being representative to protect their long term interests. Now, here's one fact that nobody actually thinks about, too. Last year, last proxy season, we voted on one hundred and sixty five thousand, one hundred and sixty five thousand shareholder and management proposals. We voted on 63,000 directors. We didn't talk about more than a few over the course of the year. Most of it is done, in a, you know, uh, as very smoothly without any controversy. There are only a few votes that have any controversy that has media attention. And so I could, we could ask, you know, Roger, has he thought about the 165,000 votes? And how few of those votes that really brought, uh, was raised to the attention of media uh, and that was very controversial. It was a fraction of our voting uh, on behalf of our asset owners. Larry, you just said something that, that kind of caught me off guard. You, you now have the technology where you might be able to soon allow every one of your, your, the people who invest with you to vote their own shares. How, how, is that news, first of all, because I hadn't heard that before? And how quickly would you make something like that happen? We've talked about that before. We're just investigating things like that. The question is, does the asset owners want that responsibility or when they entrust us with their assets, do they want us to do the vote? And we're doing we're working with a lot of the asset owners and trying to talk into them, seeing if this is of interest. And I will say it's mixed. Some people say we are paying you to be our, our fiduciary, our advisor, and for us, for you to focus on those long term issues. Other, uh, other of our clients are saying this might be interesting. Maybe we want to take back that vote and have that responsibility and we'll give it to you and you aggregate all those votes. So it's, I don't think it's anything new, but it's something that we are moving forward and thinking about how to reshape and relook at this. Uh, but I don't, I'm not, we, we talked about this investor day. I don't believe this is anything really new. Retail investors, the last time, well, actually in October, I think, of 2020, you talked about how retail investors, this was much broader than what we've seen with Robinhood and other areas. Is that still the case? What, what portion of the American public do you think is actively involved at this point in making sure they're putting more money aside? Well, as I said in the past, I'm very uh, excited about seeing how investors are focusing on even meme stocks and other things like that, as you said, Robinhood. I believe 
if we could improve financial literacy, as we could help more people focus on not just the speculating of markets and the ups and downs, but translating that into investing in the long run. The issue about retirement that Joe talked about may be uh, less of a problem for the next generation, the, or, you know, the young people who are now focused on things like ec- the equity markets. Yeah, so I, this GameStop. is one of the things that I, I look at this. I look at this as a, a, a possibly good first step. Now, if, it, if they remain to be speculating on a few stocks and that, that's all it is, then, um, then that's all it is. I will say again, though, um, what happens on those shares, those types of trading activities is totally unrelated to our mission at BlackRock. Uh, I don't have any conversation with any investors about what is happening there. The long-term investors are looking to how to build long-term returns over a long period of time. And, you know, we don't have those conversations. I think in the past you've asked me about crypto and Bitcoin. Again, in my last two weeks of business travel, not one question been asked about that. Uh, that is just not part of the focus on retirement and long-term investors. And we, we, we see very little in terms of investor uh, demand on those types of things. But quite frankly, they may not come to BlackRock for that type of demand. But I would say for all the pension funds and the insurance companies, for all the RIAs uh, that we're talking to for their clients on behalf of their retirement, you know, the dialogue is about how should I navigate my portfolio and how should I think about my portfolio over, the, uh, over a long horizon. Larry, I want to thank you for your time today. It's really good to see you. And, and maybe next time we do this in person. I think we're getting back to that point. I would love that. I was in person with all my clients in Europe and we had a lot of hugs. Excellent. We will see you back here in studio next thanks. time. But uh, thanks, thanks for joining guys. us today. Take care. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, it's an abyss, it's an empty calendar. Oh, wait, it's vacation. Travel is back, kind of. Marriott's new CEO, Tony Capuano, is looking to all markets and all 7,600 hotels for hospitality's recovery. China's kind of back. U.S., little different mix. The recovery is really led by leisure. We had a smashing 4th of July. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome uh, back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Joe Kern along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Consumer demand picture continues to gain strength in the United States. Marriott saying its July 4th weekend numbers were extremely strong, but that business travel still lagging behind. Leisure joining us now for his uh, Squawk Box debut, Tony Capuano. Marriott CEO, and um, do we have anything left to talk about? We covered all, everything uh, on break. So it's good to be back. Uh, in great person. having you. Uh, great. No, it's great Thanks to for have you here. Uh, so let's talk about some of the things that we were uh, we were just talking about off camera that, that no one else got to hear really. Uh, the, the overall environment uh, on a scale of one to ten in terms of the bounce back is it 
it, it, some things are above pre-pandemic, but other things are still down 50%. It, it's kind That's of a right. hybrid. Right? You almost have to look by segment and by region of the world. So start with China, our second biggest market. Occupancies back to pre-pandemic levels. Three straight quarters of leisure demand above 2019. And in March, business transient was 6% ahead of March of 19. So China's kind of back. U.S., little different mix. The recovery is really led by leisure. Uh, you talked a bit about 4th of July. We had a, a smashing 4th of July. And what was great, not just strong occupancy, but terrific pricing power. Our ADR over 4th of July weekend was 10% above 2019. Average daily. Wow. Average, average daily rate. Right. And if you look at the luxury tier, we were almost 35% ahead of 2019. Simply because of pricing? Yeah. Wow. And that's the metric we use. We don't do year over year. We do year over 2019. That's exactly right. For, for, for your business. I miss Arnie. I love that man uh, a lot. And I know everybody does. I, I would always ask him, you got, I don't even know who Marriott is anymore. You got so many brands. He goes, yeah, well, tough. You better learn them because we're keeping them. Are you still? Absolutely. That, why? And I think two reasons. It's really around breadth of choice, but for two distinct groups. Our customers love that breadth of choice. And as you know, we've got round numbers, 7,600 hotels. We own less than 12. And our owners and franchisees, they like that breadth of choice as well. As they look to grow their portfolios with us, they like that depending on the market where they're developing, they've got 30 brands to choose from. It's going to be a while before business travel really comes back. Is that a problem for you? Well, the fall is going to be really telling, to be sure. Again, China came right back. Uh, the U.S., what we're seeing is pretty steady increases. We're at about 50% in special corporate versus 2019. But what's interesting, if you just look at the secondary and tertiary markets, we're at about 80% of 2019. So it's markets like this, big urban cores, where folks haven't gotten back to the office yet. And so the reason I say the fall is telling, as schools open, kids get back to school, you've seen some of the big banks here in New York say you've got to get back to the office, and we think a return to the office is going to be a big catalyst for business trends. Just in terms of your portfolio revenue, how, how much is the big urban cities and how much of it is the secondary, tertiary? Well, markets? again, with 7,600 hotels, I almost have to go market yeah. by market. Um, but certainly business and group are critical to our, our EBITDA. Probably have your eye on Delta like everybody does. I'm talking about the variant. Do you have someone, you must have a staff that looks at vaccine policy around the world and how it applies to Marriott? Well, we have two things. At the very outset of the pandemic, like many of our peers, we assembled a group of health experts to really guide our decision making. And then we have our government affairs and operations teams distributed around the world that are tracking policy. Uh, it is a complex and inconsistent set of rules. Be and glad regulations. you're not the cruise industry. I mean, they, they, right. they, but so you don't need to be quite as as wary or how, how oh, are you? No, playing? We absolutely. How are you playing in, in countries where it's still a problem? How does that work? What do you need to say in a hotel? Do you need to show the proof of vaccination? Well, from the outset in in at the start of the pandemic, all of our associates had to be masked. All of our guests had to be masked. In markets where the experts have given revised guidance, so today, for instance, in the U.S., if you go into our hotels, if you're a fully vaccinated associate, you can wear a mask. You're not required to wear a mask. The same is true for guests. 
We're not checking your credentials. You haven't We're mandated just, vaccines for, for guests or, uh, or for We've not employees. mandated for our associates, but we've encouraged them, and we've provided some uh, financial incentives, and it seems to be taking. I looked at some numbers last week. The, the level of vaccinations of our associates is actually ahead of the U.S. pace in aggregate. Airbnb, is that, what are they, frenemies? Are you, do you have anything similar? Is it symbiotic? or, or Well, do you my just, friend you Brian Chesky like was yeah. one of the first people to call and congratulate me. So <laughs> I'd say friends. I think we are in that business in a very narrow segment. We launched Marriott Homes and Villas. Pre-pandemic, we only had about 2,000 listings. And we're different from them. We're not doing shared uh, bedrooms. We're not doing couch surfing. These are multi-bedroom luxury tier homes. But through the pandemic, that inventory grew to over 30,000 listings. Hey, Tony, uh, as you know, some housekeepers recently um, effectively busted up potentially a terrible situation at the All-Star Game uh, by noticing and finding a whole raft of guns and other uh, ammunition and, and, and body armor and the like by going in to the, the room. Do you believe uh, and would you like to see a requirement that housekeepers uh, go into every room daily? Should there be something like that? How are you thinking about these kinds of issues? Like many of these policies, we've got to balance safety of our guests and associates with the privacy of those guests, Uh, particularly after the tragedy out at Mandalay Bay a few years ago. Even if you've got your do not disturb sign on, we do every couple days come in and do a wellness check in every guest room. And I think in light of the event you just described, we'll take a look at that policy and determine whether it needs to be modified. Happened to stay somewhere last night, in the, in the, two nights ago in the city, and it, the big sign every time you walk by the elevator, we're coming in every 24 hours. We're going to check on your well-being, check on what you're doing. So that, that, that is happening. That's, a, that's where we are today. But I think it's for other reasons uh, as well, just to make sure that you're okay and, and everything. Um, All-inclusive, I don't see Marriott as Club Med Marriott, but you're, is that something you need to do for, yeah, for We're customers? growing that business aggressively. Why? You need to... Uh, really, I, when, in my old role when I ran our global development, people yeah. would say, how do you develop your growth strategy? And I said, it's easy. We listen to what our guests want. And increasingly, our guests for leisure trips... They like the way they purchase all-inclusive. They like not having to worry. They view it as a a worry-free vacation. And because of our size and scale and the breadth of our portfolio, as you described. That's an understatement, yeah. We didn't win every deal, but it was rare. We didn't get to step up to the plate and compete. Mm -hmm. And we saw dozens and dozens of spectacular resorts getting built through the Caribbean and some of the Eastern European resort destinations, we didn't even get a chance to compete. And so we've seen rapid growth in that portfolio, and our guests love it. I can't keep track. If I'm I'm booking a place, I just say, use my Marriott rewards here. I don't even know if you are Marriott, and they always are. That's the right answer. You have more than than anyone right now. Uh, That's a good question. I mean, we're happy with our portfolio. We've got 30, and we're keeping them all. I hope we do this again. Every quarter would be good for us. Thank you, Tony. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Great to be back. 
That's the show for today. Thank you, as always, for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears. Listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. And in the meantime, send us a tweet at Squawk CNBC. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 